Hey guys, this is Faye from Creogs Over Coffee. This is the third part of our three-part special on gestational diabetes. On this episode, Nick and I will be interviewing Dr. Donald Kustan, Professor Emeritus of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University. He will be talking to us about his life, his interests, how he became an OBGYN and ultimately a maternal fetal medicine specialist, uh, as well as his research on gestational diabetes and the current standings on research about gestational diabetes and MFM. This is a longer episode. You'll notice that this episode is almost 40 minutes long, and that's because there were so many incredible stories that Dr. Kustan shared with us. So we hope you enjoy our Q&A with Dr. Kustan. All right, guys, I'm Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Creags. Over coffee. We have a very special guest with us here today. Uh, we have Dr. Kustan. Dr. Donald Kustan, uh, Professor Emeritus of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Warren Alpert Brown School of Medicine and Women and Infants Hospital in Rhode Island. And uh, what we'll say as well is one of the fathers of gestational diabetes. So welcome, Dr. Kustan. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. So this episode, guys, we're going to go do a bit of an interview with Dr. Kustan. Um, we'll spend some time, as you may have heard already in other episodes, talking about the basics of gestational diabetes, so to speak. So diagnosis, management, etc. But what we're hoping to do in this episode, since we have Dr. Kustan with us, is to spend a little bit of time talking about a little bit more of the details of gestational diabetes, especially for those of you who may be thinking about a career in MFM, um, or thinking about a career working in gestational diabetes, um, we hope that this is going to be something exciting and informational for you. So Dr. Kustan, why don't we start basically, what made you choose OBGYN and ultimately MFM in the end? Well, OBGYN was um, a choice I made fairly late in, in my medical school time. I, was, uh, I went from being a pediatric neurologist to being an internist. And then when I did my OB rotation, I noticed that the internists were trying to figure out the micromolecular structure of the digitalis receptor, <laughs> and the OBs were trying to figure out how to deliver a breach. And I thought there was much more opportunity for, for uh, finding things out in OB. Yeah. No, I'd probably agree with that if I was faced with that question myself. <laughs> Very good. And as for MFM, that was... Um, what I would call kismet um, or chance. After residency, back in the early 70s, it was during the Vietnam era, and either after internship, you either um, applied for, a, for what was called the Berry Plan, in which they'd leave you alone for your residency, and then you'd go in as a subspecialist. Or the other option was that they would draft you out of internship as a general medical officer and ship you off to Vietnam. So I chose to join the Berry Plan, and um, I was stationed at the Naval Regional Medical Center in Oakland, California, uh, and the first day there, the, the captain, who was the, at the time the, the chief of the, uh, of the department, took two of us Berry Planners into his office. They had about six what we called lifers, people who were career military doctors, and then the two of us who had just come out of residency, and he said, to the two of us, which one of you guys likes OB and which one of you guys likes GYN? 
And the other guy, a guy named Bill Stallone, said, well, I like GYN. And I said, no, I guess I like OB. Uh, and the captain said, okay, Kustin, you're the chief of OB, and Stallone, you're the chief of GYN. Because the lifers didn't want any administrative responsibilities. They wanted to go home at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So I became uh, the chief of OB, and there wasn't any such thing as maternal fetal medicine at that time. But I um, had a clinic for high-risk pregnancies and kind of backed into um, to MFM uh, that way. What about gestational diabetes? What got you interested in that? Well, the first week I was chief of uh, OB, I walked onto the, the labor floor in the Navy. They call it the labor deck. And <laughs> there was a patient with diabetes and uh, her blood sugars were, she was in labor, and her blood sugars were in the 80s. And I'd been trained at that time to um, try to maintain their urine about one plus glucose, and their blood sugars around 150. You, we knew diabetic ketoacidosis was bad, but we also thought that hypoglycemia was, was bad for the baby. Um, and uh, so we wanted to kind of keep them on the middle road. And here's this patient in whose blood sugar I considered to be too low. And, I, and we had residents there, and I asked the residents, who's responsible for this? And standing behind me was a diabetologist, also in the Navy, by the name of Steve Lewis, and he said, I am. He was not a resident, he was attending, and he said, haven't you read anything in the last five years? And I said, oops. And he... <laughs> showed me a paper that had come out from Sweden um, a couple years before that, that showed with patients with type 1 diabetes that the perinatal mortality weight was lowest if their average blood sugar was under 100. And basically, we got to be friends and decided there, there was a, a um, metabolic research unit at the naval base, but it wasn't being used because all the real doctors were off in Vietnam. So he and I decided we would do some studies while we were there. And one of them was to look at a group of normal pregnant women, third trimester over 24-hour period, to see what their blood sugars did during that time. And the other one, um, I, at the time, uh, Sean O'Sullivan had published a study, a randomized trial of prophylactic insulin for gestational diabetes. And he used 10 units of NPH um, in the morning and showed that he could reduce the risk of a number of outcomes. So I said to, to Steve Lewis, why don't we give prophylactic insulin to our gestational di diabetic patients? And he said, how much? And I said, uh, 10 units of NPH. And he said, are you kidding? You could give a pregnant woman 30 units of insulin and you wouldn't make her hypoglycemic. That's really homeopathic. So I said, okay, why don't we do the study. And so we did a randomized trial, 20 units of NPH and 10 units of regular insulin before breakfast every morning. And again, showed we could reduce um, macrosomia. And that's kind of how I got interested in, uh, in gestation. That's really amazing. <laughs> um, so then how did you come up with this, with the criteria for diagnosing GDM ultimately? Well, that's another interesting story. So um, after, after the uh, Navy, I went back to, uh, to Yale New Haven Hospital where I had trained. And we had a young fellow in MFM. By then, MFM had started. 
and his name was Marshall Carpenter. And Marshall wanted to do his thesis on um, gestational diabetes. And he went to the um, pathology department and asked about the criteria because at the time everyone was using the O'Sullivan criteria, which were based on whole blood, uh, whole venous blood glucose using a technique called Samoji Nelson. And by then labs had switched to measuring glucose in plasma rather than whole blood. The reason being that red cells metabolize glucose. And if you take whole blood and let it sit for a while, the glucose slowly falls as the red cells metabolize it. Um, so he went to the lab people to say, you know, how should we, what numbers should we use? And at the time, the National Diabetes Data Group had converted the O'Sullivan numbers to plasma by adding 15% to each value. And that's because um, when you, the concentration of glucose in blood or any, any substance is a fraction. It's milligrams per 100 cc's, let's say. Well, in whole blood, red cells make up part of that denominator but you don't measure the glucose that's in the red cells. So in whole blood, you get a lower number than you would if you spun the blood down and just measured it in plasma, where there are no red cells to take up space. So Marshall went to the, the laboratory people and they said, well, not only did we switch to, to um, plasma, but also we're using a more specific method for measuring glucose now. The Samoji-Nelson method measured about 5 milligrams of other reducing sugars and not just glucose, but the enzymatic methods that we use, glucose oxidase or hexokinase, measure only glucose. So they suggested subtracting 5 milligrams from each of the O'Sullivan values and then adding 14%, which is more accurate than the 15% that had been used. They also suggested using the raw numbers. O'Sullivan had rounded off the cutoffs on the supposition that obstetricians could never remember numbers that weren't divisible by five. <laughs> so the numbers we were using were rounded. So Marshall, having a bit of OCD, um, used the unrounded numbers to derive the, um, the values. And that's how the uh, so-called Carpenter and Kusin criteria were, uh, came about. And subsequently, uh, a doctor at Kaiser uh, Hospital in Bellflower, California, David Sachs, went back and recreated the original O'Sullivan methodology and measured the same samples head-to-head -head with the two methodologies and found that only the Carpenter and Kustin criteria were within 95% confidence limits of the original O'Sullivan criteria, whereas the higher NDDG numbers were above 95% confidence intervals, except fasting, where, where both were within that. So that's why we, we uh, use those numbers. That is very interesting. I didn't know at all that was how that you'd come up with that criteria. That's amazing. Um, Nick, do you have other questions? Yeah. Honestly, that history is just so fascinating, especially yeah. kind of diving into the nitty gritty of even just how glucose is measured yeah. in the laboratory. Kind of moving on from there, I guess, you know, one of the things that has come out recently or some of our listeners may be more familiar with are 
using rather than insulin for treatment of gestational diabetes, using oral agents, things like metformin or gliburide. And I'm sure as you're aware too, SMFM recently came out with a statement uh, suggesting metformin as an alternative first-line agent to treating gestational diabetes. Uh, Dr. Kusian, we just want to get a little bit more sense from you about sort of what you feel like the, the pitfalls or the promise of metformin or other oral agents might be, um, and whether you think oral agents will ever become equivalent or better than insulin in treating gestational diabetes. Well, I think it would be great if oral agents were truly equivalent and in terms of efficacy and safety, because who wants to take a shot? Anyone in their right mind would rather take a pill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, my own bias is that we're not there yet. And let me just go over a little bit of the, of the history of all this. So the first thing you'd, you'd want to know about any agent in pregnancy is whether it crosses the placenta and gets to the baby. And we're pretty sure that insulin doesn't cross the placenta, at least to any measurable extent. One study once showed that antibody-bound insulin could cross the placenta to the fetus, but that was back in the days when we were using animal species insulin, and, uh, and, and it wasn't known if it was active in the fetus, but uh, we haven't used animal insulin in quite a while, so we don't, people don't produce those antibodies mm -hmm. like they used to. Um, so years ago, particularly in South Africa, they used oral agents quite a bit. And there were some anecdotal stories about prolonged neonatal hypoglycemia when the mother was exposed to oral agents. Um, it there hadn't been any randomized trials, really any animal studies uh, to look at these, these issues. And then um, Oded Langer down in Texas did a randomized trial comparing gliburide to insulin in people with gestational diabetes who needed some kind of medical therapy. And he found that the control was similar, the outcomes were similar with the two, um, the two drugs, and only about 5% of the patients on gliburide ended up having to have insulin added. He measured also gliburide in the cord blood of, of the offspring who had been exposed in utero and couldn't identify any gliburide in the cord blood. So at that time, we began using gliburide um, in, our, in our pregnant patients, and we thought it was terrific. Subsequently, a um, study came out from the maternal fetal, fe fetal pharmacology network of the maternal fetal medicine, NIH, showing that um, cord blood gliburide levels were 70% of maternal gliburide levels at the time of delivery. And that's presumably because they had more sensitive assays. Now, the true believers said that that may be true, but the gliburide levels were so low that they wouldn't be significant because these mothers hadn't taken gliburide because they were in labor. Sure. Um, but it begs the question of what if the, the mother's gliburide level was higher? What would the fetal gliburide level be? And then a second study came out showing cord blood levels 50% of maternal levels. So gliburide does cross the placenta, no question. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Um, one might argue, you could make uh, arguments for it being good, 
for the fetus or for it being bad for the fetus. After all, glyburide works by stimulating insulin production. So if it stimulated fetal insulin production, that's the high fetal insulin levels are the cause of all the problems in infants of diabetic mothers, so glyburide might make that worse. Um, subsequently, some um, reviews have come out, um, uh, systematic reviews comparing glyburide and insulin, glyburide and metformin. And one of the reasons that um, I think SMFM and, and perhaps ACOG are a little less uh, enthusiastic about glyburide is that some of those uh, systematic reviews suggested some increase in adverse outcomes in glyburide-treated pregnancies compared to um, insulin-treated pregnancies. Um, the most recent didn't show any difference. The, the um, Cochrane review, which people seem to respect mm -hmm. quite a bit, didn't show a difference. But because of those, those reviews, um, I think people have been a little hesitant to use glyburide. One of the problems I, I see with glyburide is that it has a fairly short half-life. By, by six to eight hours, it's back down to baseline levels. And in pregnancy, the Fetal Pharmacology Network showed that the metabolism is even quicker. And people have used gliburide to try to control fasting glucose levels. And it's not going to do that very well because by the time, if you give it at dinner or even at bedtime, the patient, let's say the patient goes to bed at 10 o'clock at night, gets up at 7 in the morning, that's nine hours. The glyburide is, is gone. So it's going to not work as well for, for treating fasting glucose. Um, so that's, that's glyburide. And there really aren't long-term studies on the offspring. And there's a lot of interest now in transplacental effects um, in pregnancy of um, methylation, for example, of, of uh, DNA um, that may persist into adulthood. We know um, from what's called the thrifty genotype hypothesis that um, offspring who were growth-restricted or who were very large for dates from either maternal starvation in utero or whatever causes being large for dates, presumably hyperglycemia, are more prone to um, metabolic syndrome when they, when they grow up to be adults. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of things now that are turning up that in utero effects can have lifelong effects on the fetus. So we've got to be a little cautious about exposing the fetus to agents that we don't know the results. So the other drug that's commonly used is metformin. Metformin doesn't cause insulin secretion. Metformin improves insulin sensitivity both in the liver and in the periphery. And so metformin does cross the placenta. In fact, uh, one study showed that fetal levels were about twice maternal levels of metformin. So again, is that good or bad? Um, we know that there have been very few animal studies, but a few have shown metformin effects at the cellular level. And I would, I would refer people to an article that a, a rather large group of us wrote in uh, the Gray Journal 
this fall, which was raising caution about metformin being a first-line agent for gestational diabetes. It can cause cellular effects. We don't know if that's good or bad. There are also some studies um, looking at follow-up of children exposed to metformin in utero. The A-Choice study, um, I'm sorry, the MIG trial, M-I-G-E, which is metformin in gestational diabetes, randomized people to metformin or insulin um, who had gestational diabetes, and they've done some follow-up studies, and the first follow-up study didn't show any difference in the offspring other than an increase in subcutaneous fat in the metformin-exposed offspring, but no difference in overall body fat. Subsequent studies found some other differences um, specific to different uh, groups of patients. So they had a, a group of patients who were in the Adelaide Center for that MIG trial and a group who were in New Zealand, and there were different effects depending. Um, nothing very convincing yet, but it raised the question. And then two more studies came along on children exposed to metformin, not because their mothers had gestational diabetes, but it was used to treat PCO syndrome in the mothers. And the children in these studies were more likely to be obese. They had a number of other changes. So I think um, a note of caution is, is needed for this, especially since it, uh, as I say, it's concentrated on the fetal side of the placenta. I'm not saying you shouldn't use these oral agents. I can see some great advantages to them in terms of patient acceptance and such. But I think it's important that if they're going to be prescribed to pregnant women, that the pregnant women be counseled about what's known and what isn't known about these drugs. Um, and that that counseling be documented in the patient's chart because we don't know what's going to show up 10 or 20 years from now. And having lived through the DES saga, yeah. um, I'm a little concerned. I'm not comparing it to DES. I don't I have no reason to think it's going to cause anything as, as bad as uh, vaginal cancer. Um, but I think we, we just need to be cautious. And I would use it in patients who decline insulin. And in my experience, most of those patients, when counseled about metformin, will end up deciding to take the insulin. Most of them, after they've given themselves a shot or two, say, oh, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> but occasionally we do get a patient who's simply phobic and won't do it. And in those patients, I would use one of those, uh, one of those drugs as long as there's adequate explanation. Got it. Now, that's very helpful guidance, I think, when talking about oral agents with, uh, with pregnant patients with gestational diabetes. Yeah, definitely. And just for our listeners, we will have the article that Dr. Kustan was talking about in the Gray Journal on our website, so you can refer back to it. Um, so, Dr. Kustan, I know we talked a lot about um, counseling about oral agents, you know, telling patients that we may not know everything there is to know about giving them oral agents over insulin. What other information do you think is important, especially for residents when we're counseling patients about gestational diabetes or even diabetes in general? What information do you think is most important that we convey to them? I think it's really important that they understand what it's about. So I think an explanation of what diabetes is, because these patients we know are at increased risk for getting diabetes later in life. And 
if we can um, educate them and encourage them to take um, behavioral steps that can reduce their likelihood of diabetes later in life, I think that's a very important and worthwhile thing to do. Um, so I usually start out with a discussion of type 1, type 2, and gestational diabetes and how they work and what the physiology is. And then we talk about how it affects pregnancy. So we talk about the fact that basically whatever mom's blood sugar is, the baby's blood sugar is, or the fetal blood sugar is. And the fetus, um, the normal fetus, is pretty sluggish about making insulin. They make insulin, but not very rapidly, not very strongly. But if they've been exposed to high blood sugars, they make more insulin than they otherwise would. And that it's the fetal insulin that's responsible for all the problems, big babies, shoulder dystocias, and, and so on. And so by keeping their blood sugars from being too high, they can protect the baby against making too much insulin. And then that gets us into a discussion of how do we, how do, we do that and of diet um, and of uh, pharmacologic treatment. Um, and I point out that insulin is given as an injection, and, and as I said, nobody wants to take an injection, but the good news is it doesn't get to the fetus, and so uh, we don't have to worry about its effects on the fetus. And mothers are often very concerned about what's going to get to their, their fetus. Um, so those are the main, uh, the main issues. There are certainly other things we talk about, but I think those are very important. Great. And then kind of moving from there and looking towards the future, Dr. Kustin, what areas do you think we still need to uncover or think about more in gestational diabetes? Well, I think there are a number of them, and hopefully you'll post another article on the, on the website, which was um, the um, NIH uh, had a, a think tank kind of a group a year or so ago to look at what are the problems that are unsolved in gestational diabetes. And that was published in the Green Journal this past summer. Uh, some of the the problems, I think one of the most, to me, one of the most interesting has to do with uh, early testing for gestational diabetes or pre-existing diabetes. Um, ACOG um, currently recommends testing in uh, patients who are at high risk for getting, uh, for having type 2 diabetes. Um, but it's a little confusing because they talk about the, the um, uh, 50 gram one hour screening test and that if the patient uh, is, uh, has an elevated value, then go to the three hour 100 gram GTT. Well, the three-hour 100-gram GTT has never been validated for early pregnancy for the first trimester or even the first half of the second trimester. And we don't know whether it's valid or not. There have been some studies um, suggesting that it's not always predictive of having an abnormal GTT at the usual 24 to 28 weeks. When the um, IADPSG made the recommendations for the new criteria for gestational diabetes. They also recommended testing in early pregnancy, for either for all patients or those at high risk, testing at the first prenatal visit for pre-existing diabetes. Because we know that in the, at least in the U.S. population, uh, something like 
11% of adults have type 2 diabetes and half of them don't know it. Half of them haven't been diagnosed. And so uh, they suggest that doing any of the three tests that can be done uh, in non-pregnant people be done in the early pregnancy. That would be um, a GTT, 75 gram, two hour GTT, a fasting plasma glucose, or an A1C. And the cutoff for A1C is 6.5%. And, um, and the idea is that you could diagnose pre-existing diabetes early enough in pregnancy that it would be treated differently from gestational diabetes. For example, people with pre-existing diabetes are at greater risk for congenital malformations. So you'd want to do a level 2 ultrasound at the appropriate time. They are at, at greater risk for preeclampsia, and you might want to start them on low-dose aspirin. They're at greater risk for a lot of things. Um, one of the things about type 2 diabetes is that most people who've had type 2 diabetes, or at least more than half, have had it more than five years before the diagnosis is made. And so while in type 1 diabetes, which has an acute onset, it would be very rare to find vascular disease already present. In people with type 2 diabetes, there may already be vascular disease, uh, retinopathy, diabetic kidney disease at the time of diagnosis. So you'd want to look for those things in such patients. Well, the problem is that people have simply done the 24 to 28 week testing at the first visit, and then nobody knows what to do with the results. We don't know if you can diagnose um, gestational diabetes at 10 or 12 weeks. There, has, there are no data so far to show that treating this supposed gestational diabetes has any advantage over treating later at the usual time mm -hmm. we diagnose it. So my own view is that we should do some kind of test, especially in high-risk patients, uh, obese, family history, previous uh, gestational diabetes, at the first visit. And the one I prefer is an A1C because it doesn't give you that, well, do I need to do a GTT question? It doesn't mix up the idea of what's the cutoff for a screening test. It's a diagnostic test. And yes, it's not quite as sensitive or specific as a GTT, but it's certainly going to give you the patients who need that level 2 ultrasound, who need all those other things that you would do for someone with type 2 diabetes. Now, another side question that comes out of that is what do you do with the patient whose A1C isn't 6.5 or above, but is in the pre-diabetes range, 5.7 to 6.4? And... That's not clear either. Um, in, in one pilot study that was done, um, they looked at such patients and found that only about one in four ended up having GDM at 24 to 28 weeks when they had their GTT. So, so far it's not reliable. And so I think one of the questions that needs to be answered is about early diagnosis. Is there a way to do it? what would be appropriate cutoffs, and what difference would treatment make. Second question we've already alluded to is what are, what are the long-term implications of using oral agents? What's the best way to do it? Uh, if you're going to do it, um, are they safe? And, uh, and so on.
Um, and I think, you know, last few questions here, Dr. Kustan, do you have any advice for people like Nick and myself or um, other residents and fellows, people interested in MFM? Um, or if you were standing in our shoes, what would you tell yourself? Well, if I were standing in your shoes, I probably wouldn't have gotten into medical school in the first place <laughs> because uh, uh, people are a lot smarter than they were when I was uh, in college and medical school. Um, as I think I've, I've pointed out, my career path has been very much dependent on chance. And I think um, one of the things, I think it was, um, I think it was Pasteur who said, uh, discovery favors a prepared mind. And what that means is that take advantage of things when they come your way. Um, don't, don't say, oh, I'm too busy for that, within reason. I think MFM is a very exciting field now. I'm really happy that there's been an emphasis recently on putting the M back in MFM. Um, I came along at a time before ultrasound, really, or before MFM was a prenatal diagnosis was the, uh, the, the uh, constant uh, companion of the MFMer. So I really focused on maternal disease in, in pregnancy. And then many fellowships kind of, you know, would get um, somebody else to do the, the maternal disease and just focused on uh, ultrasound and prenatal diagnosis. And while that's very important, I think it's a fabulous thing that's happened in our field. And I wouldn't say don't do that, but I also think we're the best qualified to understand how to treat maternal disease in pregnancy um, and look at its implications for the fetus. And I think that's one of the most interesting parts of our field. That's not to say we don't need help from time to time. There is a, uh, a special subspecialty of medicine called obstetric medicine. And, and some of my best friends are in obstetric medicine and I don't mean to, to, uh, to say there's no place for that. But I think we have a unique understanding of issues of delivery of, uh, of the fetus. And so that's certainly something to focus on. If you're a resident and thinking about going into any of the subspecialties, um, take a look at the, at the people in your department who are doing those subspecialties and decide for yourself if that lifestyle is right for you. I never could have gone into oncology because I couldn't imagine standing on my feet for eight hours for one operation. Um, you know, and if anybody works nights more intensively than MFMs, it's the oncologist. They're not there at night as often, but when they're there, it's really hitting the fan and uh, <laughs> they've got to be awake and alert. So those lifestyle kinds of issues can, uh, can affect um, your, your career choice. But the main thing is passion. If you have a passion for it, if you can't imagine doing anything else, that's, that's probably what you should be doing. Um, there are some, I think there's a, a tendency now for people to, uh, of your generation, to want to be employed, to not want to be in a private practice, to not want to be entrepreneurial about their practice, um, and, and there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, medical liability insurance is getting more and more expensive. Um, and, and so people want to have that, 
that shelter of being employed where they're not responsible for the medical liability insurance uh, costs directly. I think there are downsides to what's happened in, in uh, academic um, OBGYN and its subspecialties that you need to be aware of. Um, when I started out as a chair in 1982, I could protect a lot of the faculty time for research. Our faculty salaries came from the hospital's operating budget. And the clinical income that we made, we could use primarily to fund research and education. And so it, it didn't seem like it at the time, I suppose, but it was a golden age um, of academic uh, medicine. But as, as things have gotten tighter and academic uh, positions now depend more and more on clinical income, the income derived from, from seeing patients, that has really cut into the ability of departments to protect time for the faculty. And so I think it's, um, it's a real uh, juggling act. There are some things, if you're really interested in a research career, there are some things you can think about. There are various uh, fellowships, were her, um, that, that um, provide protected time for a few years at least after fellowship um, so you can get a research career started. But there's no question that it's, it's tougher. But also, you guys are smarter than we were, and I think um, you'll figure out a way. Thank you again, Dr. Kustian, for joining us for this special episode. Um, it was really an honor to have you on, and thank you for sharing so much insight with us. Well, thank you. The honor was mine. I enjoyed it. So once again, I'm Nick. I'm Faye, and this is Kriogs Over Coffee.